today I have the privilege of wrapping up our sermon series on the lost parables of Jesus. Now, for those of you who haven't been with us these last couple of weeks, what we've been spending time doing is looking at the trio of lost parables that Jesus speaks in Luke chapter 15. And there's a reason why we're doing this. That reason is so that we might deepen our understanding of God's heart for those who are far from him. So we might deepen our understanding of God's heart to those who are far from him. And so we started, if you were here, you remember in week one, with the parable of the lost sheep. By being reminded of God's personal pursuit of us, right? Just as the shepherd leaves the 99 to go in pursuit of the one, so does Jesus relentlessly pursue after each one of us. And then last week, we were encouraged and we were equipped, really, to reflect the Father's heart towards the lost among us. I think we were all inspired and, and encouraged by the diligence and intentional efforts of the woman who pursued her lost coin. But here's the thing, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, that is really only two-thirds of the message that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the sinners that were in his midst. There's still one more critical story that really ties all of this together. And it's a story that's commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Now let me just see by a quick show of hands, how many of you are familiar with this story, the parable of the prodigal son? Don't be shy, you can leave them up. Yeah, pretty much all of you. That's what I expected. We've all heard or seen this dozens of times. It's even portrayed in, in songs and in movies. Like this is one of the most famous stories in history, which is exactly why I need you to set aside everything you think that you know about this story. Because I think we need to view it this morning from a fresh perspective. And I think that if we do that, if we set aside what we think we know, then God will deepen our understanding of his love for us. Sometimes I think we can hear stories like this, and it's like we're skipping a rock, you know, across a, a body of water, right? You just kind of get to skip, like, oh, yeah, I know that part, I know that part, I know that part. What happens is we never get down <laughs> below the surface. So go ahead and set aside what you think you know and allow God to deepen your understanding of his unfailing love. Does that sound good? Okay, good, because we have to start right at the top. If you look in most of your Bibles at this parable, you'll see at the top there is a title. Now, that title was not put there by the original writers. That's been put there by translators and people after the fact. And the reality is that title really isn't a good title for this story because there's not just one prodigal son in this story. There are actually two. There's actually two. See, we tend to focus on the younger son's rebellion, right, on his, uh, the grace he receives when he comes home to the father. But we miss the fact that Jesus told this parable about not one, but two lost sons. You all know that my typical kind of rhythm is to paint a picture for you with an illustration. I'm not going to do that this morning because somebody has already painted this picture, and it's an artist by the name of Rembrandt. And so we've got a picture up here of Rembrandt's masterpiece called The Return of the Prodigal Son. This is housed uh, in, in St. Petersburg in, in Russia, and it's about 350 years old. And if you look at it, I don't know if how many of you are familiar with Rembrandt's artwork, but really what he excelled and what he's known for is his ability to use light. Kind of weird, right, because you're painting, but he's, he's, he's using light to focus our attention on the most important parts of his work. And so it's no surprise as you look at this painting that you see a lot of light on the son, the prodigal son returning, and on the father with that embrace. But do you notice who else is highlighted there on the right? The guy that's standing there with this distant and sort of disapproving 
look. Well, that's the older of the two sons. And what Rembrandt is trying to point our attention to is the fact that he too is lost. Only he wasn't lost on account of his rebellion. He was lost as a result of religion. See, what I believe Jesus is communicating to us with this story is that there is more than one way for us to turn our backs on God. There's more than one way for us to turn our backs on God. See, for some of us, it might look like breaking all of the rules and rejecting God's love. But for others, it might look like keeping all of the rules and neglecting his love. Do you see the difference there, family? There is more than one way to turn our back on God. But what we come to find out through this story is that regardless of why we turn from him, regardless of what kind of lost or how lost we might be, that our heavenly father never stops loving us, that he never stops pursuing us, and that he never stops inviting us to receive his free gift of grace. This is why we need to view this story from a fresh perspective this morning. So I want to ask you, as you do that, as the Lord maybe reveals some new things in your heart, would you pay careful attention to one thing? Would you pay careful attention to the heart of the Father as he responds to each of his lost sons? I can't wait to see what God's going to reveal to us through his word. But before we get there, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we are humbled. We're just humbled to be able to even come before you this morning. Reminded as I look at this portrait of the prodigal son's return, just how lavish your love is for us. Just how undeserving we are of your grace. So Lord, I ask that you would open our ears this morning so that we might hear your truth more clearly. Open our eyes so that we might see you more vividly. And open our hearts so that we might receive the truths you long to reveal to us today. Lord, would you have your way in this place. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can go ahead and get those out now. Turn them to Luke chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 11, but before we get to that point, I want to help set the stage a little bit for some context. See, we've been talking about how this trio of parables is meant to point us towards Jesus' mission to seek and to save the lost. But what we haven't mentioned up until this point is sort of the greater context of what Jesus is telling this story in. See, this parable... Actually, these three parables, they're a follow-up to a previous parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn back there. I'm not going to read the story. I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. But we need to understand why Jesus is sharing these three parables. And if you look in Luke chapter 14, you'll see what's called the parable of the great banquet. The parable of the great banquet. And Jesus, he shares this story as he's dining with some of the, of the high-ranking Pharisees. And he's saying, hey, here's a picture of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. And he equates it to a great banquet. And this banquet where this this man is putting on this banquet and he invites this this huge guest list to come to this extravagant banquet. Only problem is, when time comes for the banquet, nobody shows up. Right? All these people, they start bailing on him, each with their own excuse. But the bottom line is the same. This place is empty. And so the man, he goes to his servant and he sends him out to the outskirts of the city, to the highways and the byways and gathers in the the poor and the lame and the blind and the crippled. And he fills up his party with not those who society would expect, but those who society has overlooked and cast out. Jesus paints a picture, says, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. 
And in sharing this story, what he's doing is he's sending a, a direct message to those religious leaders. See, because in their minds, it was only the select few, only those that looked and walked and talked like them who would be on the guest list for such a party. But Jesus says, hey, if this is your version of the heavenly party that I'm throwing, then you're going to the wrong party. See, it's a powerful and confronting picture that Jesus is painting for these religious leaders. But the problem is, as often happens in Scripture, in the Gospels, the Pharisees don't quite get it. Right? It just goes sort of over their heads because in the very next chapter, the one that we've been looking at these last few weeks, what's the context that Jesus shares these parables in? Well, the Pharisees are upset that he's dining with tax collectors and sinners. He's like, did you not hear the story I just told you in Luke chapter 14? That's the context he's talking about. How could they not see the irony? Jesus had just told them the story of this great banquet, and now he's giving them a real-life picture of what it looks like, and it's right over their heads. So instead, Jesus says, okay, he's patient, right? Jesus is so patient. So I'm going to give you not just one, but three more stories to show you what this looks like. And you'll notice, as we've talked about, what's at the end of each of these lost parables? An extravagant celebration. A great banquet, if you will. And of course, none is bigger than the great banquet we're going to see at the end of today's story. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's look now at the parable of the two lost sons. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, again, don't let that rock skip over the surface. Let it go a little bit deeper, right? Because we hear this story and we think, oh, yeah, I know this. Like, you know, he goes and asks for the money and the father gives it to him. But if we have a fuller understanding of what's actually happening here, you'll see just how offensive this moment really is. See, we read this request and we tend to think that the, the younger son was just going to ask his father for like his, his college fund money, right? Or maybe like the savings bonds that grandma gave him when he was six. Anybody have those savings bonds? Took like 30 years for them to be worth anything? Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, right? But in reality, this was a huge deal. What this younger son is doing is really unthinkable. He's going in, he's asking for his full inheritance, which would normally not be available to him until after his father had passed. So this isn't just a simple financial request. This was the son going to his father and saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. He says, Dad, I wish you were dead. And I think it's important to point out, right, this was not as a result of like some bad relationship. The father was not abusive. He wasn't an absentee father. No, it's just because the father stood in the way of this rebellious son's journey towards self-discovery. Right? He thought that the only thing standing between him and the life that he desired was his father. And so he said, hey, if I just remove my dad from the equation, I'll be free to go and pursue the things that I want to pursue. I think ultimately for us, it's the same reason why we often rebel against God. Right? We view him as an obstacle in our journey that keeps us from the things that we ultimately truly desire. And there's two things I want to point out to you that this son and I think we each desire as well that causes us toward, to move towards rebellion. The first of those is a desire for freedom. It's pretty clear to see that the younger son, he wanted out from under his dad's watchful eye. 
he can go pursue the desires of his flesh. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, and he did not want to wait another second to do it. That's why we see him leave so quickly and go directly in the opposite direction to lead a completely different life. I think at some point, that's the same desire we all have too, right? It's almost like in our nature. It's what led to us sneaking out of the house as teenagers or getting into some trouble in college. You know, I I think that's what people do, right? My parents are going to be watching this later, so I'm guessing that's what you guys did. But what we see here is different. See, because a desire for freedom turns to rebellion when it comes at the cost of somebody else. That's what we see here with the younger son's rebellion. His journey of self-discovery wasn't just about breaking a few rules. This was going to sever relationships. He sought after his freedom at the expense of those who cared about him most. And so what happens is they became the ones who paid the price for his quote-unquote freedom. Leads me to a second reason we choose to rebel. It's ultimately a desire for control. We want to be the ones in in command of our own destiny, right? We don't want to wait for our father's blessing or for his perfect timing. We don't want to wait for his inheritance. We want what we want, and when do we want it? Now. We want it now. So much so that if we're like the younger son, we're willing to mortgage our future, even mortgage our eternity for the sake of having what we want and having it now. So this younger son's desire for freedom and for control, they lead him to do the unthinkable, to disgrace his father. But again, focus on the heart of the father. Because while the younger son does the unthinkable, he responds by doing the unimaginable. Look at verse 12. How does the father respond? Jesus says, the father divided his property between them. In other words, he doesn't fight it. He actually gives in to the son's wishes. And y'all, as, as a dad myself, I really, I truly can't wrap my mind around this. I can't wrap my mind around this, that our Father loves us so much that when we rebel against Him, He lets us. He lets us. Why would He do that? Well, it's not because He's fearful. It's not because He's passive. No, it's because He's wise. It's because He's merciful. Let me explain to you what I mean. Let's look at the two options that were available to the father in this moment, okay? Behind door number one is swift disciplinary action. Jewish law said that he would have been well within his rights to disown his son. He actually would have been well within his rights to to beat his son or even have him put to death. So that's door number one. Door number two is to agree to his wishes at a great cost to himself. See, it's not like the father could have just written a check for his son's inheritance. You know, there wasn't Wells Fargo back in the day. He couldn't like Venmo his son's his inheritance. So what do you have to do? He actually had to go sell off a third of all that he owned. His property, his livestock, all of that. And so not only would he have felt the weight of that sacrifice, he would have also bared the burden of that shame. Imagine for just a moment the conversations that must have happened as he's selling off all these things that he owned, each time having to to share of the shame of his son leaving, having to relive what that must have been like. What we see here is that even though he would have been more than justified to take what's behind door number one, would have been more than justified to discipline his son, the father chooses door number two instead. 
in his wisdom, in his mercy, in his grace, he pays the price for what his son wants. Trusting that when he finds himself in ruin, he will know who to run to. Listen, I know a lot of us have some prodigals in our own lives. And I think this is often the hardest truth to receive, that the heart of the father with someone who knows they're lost and wants to stay lost is to let them. It's to leave them trusting that when their rebellion leads to ruin, they will know exactly who to run to. We don't have time to to dive deeper into that this morning, but if you have a prodigal in your own life, maybe your own child, I'd love to pray with you, to pray over you, to walk with you in this, because it's a hard truth to understand that sometimes we have to let them go and show them grace as they go so that they'll know exactly who to return to. Let's pick up the story again in verse 14, where we're going to see that ruin is exactly where this rebellious son finds himself. Jesus says, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pod that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, we don't know the the time span that was between the the younger son's departure and his downfall, but it doesn't really matter. Because what Jesus is pointing us to is the fact that rebellion will always lead to ruin. That if we want to turn away from God, yeah, he will let us. But that journey, it has a predetermined destination. That destination for this rebellious son was a place that we refer to nowadays as rock bottom. Right? Jesus says his money ran out, the land dried up. And so what was he forced to do? He was forced to trade in his freedom and his control. The two things that led him on that journey in the first place, he was forced to trade them in all so that he could just survive. And the picture that leaves us with is this son sitting amongst the pigs, covered in filth. That picture we get is the true nature of sin. See, sin will always take us further than we want to go. It'll always keep us longer than we thought we would stay, and it'll always cost us more than we thought we would pay. That's the nature of sin. It always starts out subtle. We rarely, if ever, dive in to the deep end. It starts out subtle, and then it snowballs, and before long, we find ourselves in a place we never wanted to be. I think some of you know exactly what that feels like. What starts out as some light scrolling through social media quickly turns to lust. And that lust, it snowballs into pornography, and that pornography gives way to more and more sexual sin. Sin always takes us further than we want to go. Maybe for some of you, it starts out subtly like a, like a good relationship at your office with somebody of the opposite sex. And it starts out subtle, just with a little harmless flirting that gives way as it snowballs into an emotional affair, into a physical affair. And before long, you were sitting in the filth of a broken relationship, a broken marriage, 
sin may start out subtle, but it'll always take you further than you want to go. It'll always keep you longer than you thought you'd stay, and it'll always cost you more than you thought you would pay. So you can rebel all you want. You can chase after freedom. But if the freedom you want is a life apart from God, you will eventually find yourself enslaved to another master. If you're here this morning and you've seen that cycle of sin in your life, I want you to know that it does not have to be this way. It never has to be this way. Because while the true nature of sin is that it'll take you farther than you want to go, the true nature of God's grace is that you can never outrun it. So no matter how lost you might be, even if you feel like you're all alone with the pigs, I want you to know this. God is still with you. God's still with you. Look at verse 17. This is a pivotal moment for this rebellious son. He's reminded of his father's love. And our translations say this. It says he came to himself. But I want you to hear this. That does not mean he was by himself. See, the truth is, in moments like this, when we are awakened to the depths of our sin and to the truth of God's love, we don't come to that place by ourselves. We are taken there by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who wakes us up. It's the Spirit who meets us in the depths of our sin, in the depths of our shame. It's the Spirit who points us to the Father. We don't come to that place by ourselves. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The responsibility we have then is our response, right? To turn away from that path of entitlement and rebellion and to choose instead humility and submission. This is the pathway home from a life of rebellion against God. Humility and submission. This is where true repentance begins, by being honest about our sin and taking action to turn from it. It's honesty and it's action. That is the first step in repentance. But here's the thing I need you to realize here. It's not the last step in repentance because true repentance happens in the arms of our Father. True repentance happens in the arms of our Father. That's where real change occurs, only after the Spirit has awakened us, only after the Father has embraced us. It's not enough to simply turn from our sin. If all we do is turn from it, it won't be long until we turn right back to it. But in the arms of the Father is where we find the strength and the grace we need to receive victory over that sin. Only in the arms of our Father. Speaking of which, let's look now to verses 20 through 24. We're going to see how the Father responds when his rebellious son returns. Jesus tells us, The son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Of all the ways the father could have responded and probably honestly should have responded, this had to be the most unexpected. Right, the rebellious son who left with great wealth returns shoeless and empty-handed. But from a long ways off, he sees his father already there waiting for him. 
before he even had a chance to say a word, before he was even within earshot, we see the father come running in passionate pursuit of his son. And I love that Jesus gives us the details because in the details shows us the intentional heart of the father. First, he says that he felt compassion on his son. There's a, there's a Greek word here we're going to put up on the screen. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's important for you to know. Because what this word tells us is that the father felt from his innermost parts, the literal translations, like from his bowels, from his innermost parts, he was compelled towards his son by the compassion he felt for him. Even though he may have been hurt by his son, he still hurt for his son, and even felt, he even hurt with his son. That compassion is what compelled him to do what really, in, in the minds of the people these days, was so disgraceful in that he ran after his son. He couldn't help it, right? His compassion just compelled him to do it. Even though it would have been disgraceful for him to lift up his tunic to show his legs and to run, he didn't care. In the same way, he didn't care when he had to sell off a third of his estate. He didn't care what people think. Now all he cares about is that his son, who was lost, is found. That his son had returned home. And we see that in the way that he, he captures him in an embrace. Jesus says he, he embraced him, he hugged him, and he kissed him. Never mind that he was covered in filth. Never mind that he was just with a bunch of unclean pigs. No, even in his defiled state, the father still wrapped him in a warm and loving embrace and showered him with affection. And what I love is that the son, right, he, he's rehearsed this big, long speech. He barely gets to say any of it. <laughs> He goes in the middle of it. He's saying, Father, you know, I've sinned, I'm guilty. And the father just says, stop. He cuts him off. He says, there's nothing you have to do. There's no role you have to, to fulfill. There's no, there's no debt that you have to pay. He says, you're my son. And then he proves that to him. I want you to notice what he does. He lavishes gifts upon him. In those days, the, the right way for somebody to make restitution in a situation like this would have been for the son to bring gifts to the father, but we don't see that here. He returns empty-handed. It's the father who gives gifts to the son. He gives him a robe. That robe would have communicated the forgiveness and reconciliation to all those who were around him. Less noticeable, but even more important, is the ring that he puts on his hand. This ring would have had a, a seal that represented the family. This is him restoring his son's place amidst the family. And then lastly, the sandals. I love the sandals. Don't forget the sandals. See, because in those times, only servants and slaves were barefoot. And so he may have returned being willing to serve in that role, and the father says, no, you're not coming back as a servant. You are coming back as my son. And of course, we know how this piece ends, right? He tops it off by throwing a great party. This is what lies at the end of the road of repentance. Complete restoration between father and son and a celebration beyond anything we could ever imagine. But here's the thing. That's not the whole story. That's just one lost son. In fact, I don't even believe this is the climax of the story. It's often told that way, but I think what Jesus is ultimately getting at the main point of this story is actually focused on the other lost son. So let's take a look now at the story of the older brother, the one who was lost on account of religion. Let's look at verses 25 through 30. Jesus says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Isn't it interesting that the younger son returns humbled, willing to be treated as a servant, while the older son, who stayed, pridefully resents being treated as one. That's basically what he's saying here. Look at the language he uses. He doesn't address his father with respect. Actually, he doesn't really address him at all. He just says, look, all these years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. What kind of language is he using? He's using the language of a master and a slave. This is how the religious son viewed their relationship all along. And so what happens is that his perception of their relationship led him not on a journey towards self-discovery like his brother, but rather down the road of self-righteousness. And even though these may be two different roads, they're both headed in the same direction. They're both headed away from the Father. In fact, if you look a layer beneath the surface, you'll see that it was the same desires that led to each of these sons distancing themselves from their father. Again, in the older brother, we see the same desire for freedom. He wasn't interested in his father. He was only interested in what his father could give him. So just like his little brother, he chooses to use his dad for his own benefit rather than just enjoying him, rather than serving him, rather than just sitting with him and enjoying who he is. He wanted his own freedom. And just like his little bro, right, he wanted control. He grew impatient. He had slaved long enough, he thought, now it was his turn for things to be done his way. In the end, really, the only difference between the two brothers is that one thought he could demand the life that he wanted. The other one thought he had earned it. One thought he could demand the life that he wanted. The other one thought that he had earned it. Neither one of them truly understood their father's love. And this is the danger. This is where I think Jesus is ultimately getting at. Because we have all been the younger brother. The challenge is not becoming the older one. The challenge for those of us who have been found is to continuing to trust in who we belong to and not in what we do. Because I want you to notice that the older brother, he was doing all the right things. He was obeying all the commands. He was even in his father's house. And yet he was just as lost as his little brother was. The same can happen to you and to me. This is the warning that Jesus is giving by sharing this story. That if we fall into the traps of religion and self-righteousness, we will find ourselves in the exact same spot as the older brother, on the outside of the party, looking in. But here's the good news. There's always good news. The good news is that the father responds to a heart that's hardened by religion in the very same way that he does with a heart that is hardened by rebellion. That's why we see him pursue his older son in verse 28. Jesus says that he went out to him and he pleaded with him to join the party because the father ultimately has the same grace for each of his lost sons. 
And just as he does with his rebellious son, he reminds his religious son of who he is. He says in verse 31, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. He restores the relationship. He says, we are not master and slave, we are father and son. And even though he was just as undeserving as his brother, he's reminded that all the father has belongs to him. Not as a wage earned by a servant, but an inheritance that's given to a son. So now as I invite the band back up, I want to look together at how the older brother responds. Look back at chapter 15. There's just one problem. Jesus doesn't tell us how he responds. He leaves this on a cliffhanger. If this were a modern-day movie, you would see the, the picture of the older son standing outside of the party looking in, and the screen would just fade to black. So Jesus' audience then, and, and I believe his audience now, is left wondering, like, what happened? Did he accept the invitation? Did he go into the party? But Jesus doesn't answer that question. It's because he wants us to answer it for ourselves. How will you respond? How will you respond to God's unfailing love? Because the gift has already been given. Right? The price has already been paid. His grace is available to you. The only question is whether or not you will accept that invitation to join the party. See, just like the father in the story, God's not going to force a decision. But he will continue to repeatedly extend an invitation. And so here's what that invitation looks like. There are some of you who are here this morning and you know that you are the younger brother. You know that you are living a life of rebellion, that you have run so far from God. If that's you, then the invitation this morning is simply come home. Come home. Turn from that life and come home. His grace is available to you today if you surrender your life, surrender your will. Leave behind the mess that you have found yourself in and you will find a father who has already been waiting there with open arms. Come home to those of you who are here this morning maybe your heart's been hardened a little bit maybe you can relate to that religious older brother some of you may be here this morning in the father's house but still be far from his heart if that's you then the invitation this morning is to come back come back to the father's arms he has always been with you. All that he has is yours. Not because of anything you have done, but because of who he is. That is the father heart of God.